0: into a snare of the devil. We simply cannot understate the importance of godly leadership in the local church. When we join a church, we are, in effect, entrusting our souls to the care of its pastors. These men are called to care for the saints of God, those purchased by Christ's very blood. Theirs is the most important stewardship a person can have, the stewardship of souls. And therefore, spiritual maturity is absolutely essential to the pastorate. Pastors cannot take us where they have not been themselves. You would not hire a guide to show you around the Grand Canyon who had never actually been to the Grand Canyon himself. You would want to hire somebody familiar with the territory, someone who had spent hours and days hiking the trails and learning the best spots for sightseeing. In the same way, pastors are to be men who have been faithfully walking with the Lord, men who have spent hours and days and weeks and months and years in His Word, growing in intimacy with Him. Only then can they lead others to the same place. So I want us to mark this principle right here at the beginning. The spiritual condition of a church will almost always be dependent upon the spiritual condition of its leadership. Of its leadership. To see that, just think about the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. When a king came along who trusted the Lord, the people themselves would often follow that king's example and and turn from other gods. But when a king arose who was wicked... The people of Israel would often follow that king in his wickedness. Another example of this principle is found in Jeremiah 23. Just listen to this. This is God addressing the prophets of Judah. He's speaking to those who were called to speak His word to His people. And listen to what God says to these prophets. He says, Concerning the prophets, My heart... "...is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine, because of the Lord and because of His holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right." Both prophets and priests are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. So we have ungodly prophet, ungodly priest. What does God say? Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me, its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Notice that the wickedness of the prophets is said to strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns from evil. The very thing that God's prophets were meant to do to call his people to righteousness is not what they were doing, they were doing the opposite. They were giving license to evil. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets Behold, I will feed them with bitter food, I will give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. The leaders, the influence of Israel's leaders was very clear. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. And because these prophets abused their authority and abused the calling God had given to them, God says that they will be judged. Now, what if things had been different? What if the prophets and the priests had done what is right? Would it have made a difference? God says, yes. Jeremiah 23, 21-22, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stayed in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. God says, if my prophets had been faithful to do what I called them to do, the people of Israel would have repented and the punishment that was coming upon them would have been avoided. Here is the utter importance of godly leadership. John MacArthur says, whatever the leaders are, the people become. Hosea says it this way, like people, like priests, which seems the other way, but his point is, as the priests are, so the people will become. Jesus said, everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher, Luke 6.40. And biblical history demonstrates that people seldom rise above the spiritual leadership, the spiritual level of their leadership. And so we need to have that principle in mind, that it is utterly important that we have godly pastors. Now, with that in mind, I want us to consider the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3. And before we look at the specifics, let me make three just general observations about these verses um, number one, notice that they are mainly character qualifications. They are mainly character qualifications. They, they do not say your pastor must have gone to this school or have this degree or had this kind of upbringing. No, no, no. They are character qualifications. And when we look at a candidate for pastor, we ought always to look primarily and mainly at that man's character. We are not to to require that that candidate have achieved a certain level of social status or a certain level of popularity. We should not require that candidate to have certain degrees. Particularly shameful were those days, like before the Reformation or in the Roman Catholic Church in those days, where pastoral positions were given to the highest bidder. Whoever could pay the most for the job had the job. No, when looking for a pastor, character is the main issue. Number 2. All but one of these qualifications apply to every Christian. All but one of these qualifications apply to every Christian, except for the requirement that pastors are to be able to teach. Every other qualification listed here for pastors is commended elsewhere of all believers in general. All Christians are to be above reproach. All Christians are to be faithful in their marriages. All Christians are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. And it only takes a moment to see that this makes perfect sense. Pastors are to set the example for God's people of what they are all to be. Just as Jesus' disciples were called to imitate Him, and just as Paul called his readers to imitate Him, pastors ought to be able to say to their congregations, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, Pastors will never be perfect, of course, but they ought to live in such a way that Christians can look to them as examples of godliness and Christ-likeness. And therefore, what God desires for His people to become... He requires His pastors to be. Allow me to say it one more time. What God desires for His people to become, He requires His pastors to be. And then number three, notice that these qualifications assume male leadership. Male leadership. In in verse 1, we read that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 2 says that a pastor is to be the husband of one wife, not the wife of one husband. Verse 4 says he must manage his own household well. Verses 5, 6, and 7 all echo that masculine pronoun, he, he, he. Unless we have any doubts about this and in our culture today, there are lots of questions about this. All we have to do is look back to the chapter before it, the passage that comes right before this passage. Look at 1 Timothy 2 beginning of verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, beginning of verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now we, one time, took almost an entire sermon to deal with that text. We've preached through that text before, so we're not going to do that tonight. But suffice it to say that when we study that passage, it forbids female pastors on theological grounds, not on cultural grounds. Paul was not simply reflecting his time, as some have claimed. Instead, Paul was noting that God created men and women to fulfill different roles and that the fall of the human race can be traced back to those distinct roles being ignored. And so, since I don't have time to go further into that now, let me just remind you, we do have questions and answers at the end. So if anybody has questions about why we don't have women preachers, we are happy to address that. It at the end, and those who are eager to see the score of the game can just leave if you need to. So. Now, when Paul prefaces a statement with, "This saying is trustworthy," it is always a sign that he is about to say something that is both true, it's trustworthy, but it's also important. So all throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul uses this, this way of introducing super important statements, right? This saying is trustworthy. Look at 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Is that an important statement? Yeah, that is an absolutely important statement. This is a statement that is essential to Christianity, a statement that we would do well to reaffirm day in and day out. Turn quickly over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 11. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so here again, Paul uses that formula. The saying is trustworthy to demark something very important he's about to say. It's very similar to what Jesus does in the Gospels, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, right? Or King James, verily, verily, I say to you. Literally, it's the word amen, amen, right? The word amen means it is true. And so amen, amen, I say to you, Jesus would say. That's how he introduced a super important statement. That's what Paul does in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. That's how he begins this section. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now Paul is directing our attention to the nobility of the pastoral office, how it ought to be esteemed by those aspiring to it. Those who desire the office of pastor need to recognize that the work of a pastor is kalos in the Greek. It means noble, honorable, excellent. Cotton Mathers said it this way, the office of the Christian ministry rightly understood is the most honorable and important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty men. Dare I say that the office of pastor is a heavier and greater responsibility than the office of president of the United States or any other country because of the spiritual significance of the office. It is a noble task. Two reasons why it's a noble task. The first is the nature of the work. Pastors are responsible as stewards to care for the souls of God's people, to feed them, to lead them, to protect them. But second, pastoring is a noble task because it is God Himself who instituted this office. This isn't a position that was created by men. This is a position that was willed by God for the good of His church. So just as we talk about the institution of marriage as being one that is inherently sacred and of high value, so it is with the offices of pastor and even deacon in the local church, both ordained and instituted by God. Now, take a moment to consider how we should protect the nobility of the pastoral office. Uh, First, we should treat the office of pastor with respect by taking great care not to put somebody in the office who was unqualified. Uh, In the New Testament, it appears that church leaders, once they were convinced that a man was ready to enter the pastorate, they would lay their hands on him as a sign of their solidarity with him and support for him. Uh, Installing pastors in that way was a Uh, in a public service was one good way of showing the nobility of the office. But listen to 1 Timothy 5.22. Paul says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. In other words, we're to be very patient and examining someone for the pastoral office. We're to do this in a very careful and sober way. We ought not to be quick to appoint somebody to this office who is not qualified. Second, we show that the pastoral office is a noble office by the way we care for our pastors. Now that'll be our subject next week, so I'm just going to put that off to then as we talk about, all right, we've talked about you know if, if we vote on Merle and Merle's approved, We've looked at what all his responsibilities would be to us. What would our responsibilities be to him? And so we're going to look at that next week. But then third, note that we should protect the nobility of the pastoral office by the way we fire pastors. Even the way we fire them should show the esteem we have for the office. Uh, two points to be made. Look at 1 Timothy 5.19. 1 Timothy 5.19. We read this. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? So the point is we should exercise caution when we hear bad reports about our pastors. We're not to believe every accusation we hear. Pastors are particularly vulnerable to slanderous attacks simply because they are public figures. And then the second point is made in the following verse, verse 20. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, the point is that when a pastor does continue in sin, it is not to be taken lightly. The pastor needs to be dealt with in a way that lets the whole church know that sin is deadly and dangerous. Pastors who abuse their office by living, and re- in, living in sin and refusing to repent are disqualified by these verses and are to be removed from their positions and oftentimes from the very membership of the church that they pastor. And so we're to be very careful in believing accusations, but when there is true sin in the life of a pastor that he will not repent of, we are to show the nobility of the office by not allowing him to remain there. Now, Let's look at our list of qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, the list of qualifications. Notice that they begin, verse 2, with the word, therefore, therefore. The point is that since shepherding God's people is a noble task, those who aspire to that office need to be men who live holy lives. And this is really the essence of the very first qualification that is given, right? An overseer must be above reproach. The word literally means not able to be held and signifies that there should be no obvious sin in a pastor's life that would disqualify him from the office. In fact, all of the qualifications that follow are really just helping define and explain this one above reproach. Is the man committing adultery? He's disqualified. Does he have a violent temper? He's disqualified. Is see, he must be above reproach, right? Each one of these things in the list is just helping us define what it means for him to be above reproach. Not perfect, but not obvious sin that would disqualify him. Now, what follows above reproach is six characteristics of what he should be. Six positive characteristics of what he should be. Uh, The first is that he is to be the husband of one wife. Or literally in the Greek, a one woman man. Now, this is the most debated qualification of all. Um, I think in every, every time I was, uh, when I came here and met with the committee that was looking at me as pastor, when I was ordained and was working with that committee, when I came to the, this is always one of the questions they ask. So, what do you think it means, the husband of one wife? Well, we must keep in mind that Paul's point in this list is that a pastor be a man of Christian maturity. And so don't forget that or you'll miss the forest for the trees. Some think that Paul is simply making clear that a pastor should not be a polygamist. Uh, that was J. Vernon McGee's view, right? That, that he's simply saying you can't be a polygamist. You can't have two wives or three wives or four wives, just one wife. Um, that view is, is hard to sustain because in the Roman culture in which Paul was writing, polygamy was... Really very, very rare. Um, prostitution abounded, divorce abounded, promiscuity abounded, but polygamy was really something of a more ancient day, and so it's unlikely that that's what Paul had in mind. I think the point is simply that a pastor is to be someone who is faithful to his wife. This is what God calls us as Christians to be. He calls us to be faithful to our spouses, and, and pastors are to set the example in this. Now, I do not hold the view, as some do, that this means that all pastors have to be married men. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. But I think Paul is saying, if you are a married man, you need to be one who sets the example of faithfulness to your wife. Can a man who has been divorced serve as a pastor? That is a very common question based on this verse. And I would just say that I think churches should handle that on a case-by-case basis. Basis Was the man divorced before or after he became a Christian? Was it two decades ago or two days ago that he divorced? Has the man repented of his divorce if the divorce was sinful? If a man was divorced in the non-recent past, but has since repented of any sin involved, has matured spiritually, has become an example of faithfulness to the church, then I would not suggest that that divorce should disqualify him. If he, has re- if he has remarried, the real question is this. Is he now being a one-woman man to his new wife? I think faithfulness, marital faithfulness to your wife is really the point. I have your questions for the end. The next three qualifications are similar to one another. The next three are that an overseer must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Since pastors have heavy responsibilities, it is extremely important that they know how to think seriously with a clear mind. It doesn't mean that pastors can't have a sense of humor, but it does mean that when it is time to handle serious issues, pastors know how to be serious. Furthermore, pastors need to know how to have control of themselves. They need to know how to not fly off the handle in a fit of rage or give in to sensual lusts. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The point is that he has let down his defenses and that man will be left vulnerable to all sorts of sins and temptations. And because people will not follow a man that they do not respect, it is important that pastors live in a respectable manner. The way they speak as well as the way that they act should reflect the character of Christ. Now, let's take a moment and remind ourselves that these qualifications are not just for pastors. These qualifications are also for those who follow them. These three qualities ought to characterize all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in a real battle with sin, and we have a very serious commission to spread the gospel to all peoples. And therefore, take a moment and ask yourself these questions. Am I sober-minded? Am I self-controlled? Am I respectable? Would my children describe me this way? Or my grandchildren, my spouse, my co-workers? Are these words they would use to describe my life? Well, next we see that pastors are to be hospitable, hospitable. And the point is that pastors should be the kind of men who are available, for others to come to them with their questions and with their hurts. Pastors ought not to be aloof, like a man who only comes out of his office to give a sermon and then disappears right back in and and can't be reached the rest of the week. All Christians are to be hospitable to one another, eagerly seeking to encourage and bless one another and have fellowship with one another, and pastors are to lead the way. Alexander Stralk says, for an elder to be inhospitable is a poor example of Christian love and care for others. The shepherd elder is to give himself lovingly and sacrificially for the care of the flock. And this cannot be done from a distance. This cannot be done with a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning or even through a superficial visit. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and one's home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. Well, finally, we see that pastors are to be able to teach. As we noted earlier, this is the only qualification that has to do with ability or skill rather than character. But it has to be included because it is through the communication of God's Word that pastors feed and sustain God's people. A pastor that cannot teach is like a truck driver that cannot drive or surgeon that does not know how to use a knife. In his letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul says that a pastor must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And so a pastor must be able to teach. Now, those are six things that a pastor should be. Paul then moves to four things that a pastor must not be. These are four things a pastor should not be. Number one, a pastor should not be a drunkard. We've already seen that pastors should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Well, drunkenness is completely contrary to that kind of life. The Bible tells us that wine is a mocker. It makes a fool out of otherwise respectable men. A man will do things when he is drunk that he would otherwise never do. And it is in God's wisdom that He commands not only all pastors, but all Christians to abstain from drunkenness. Now next in the list is he is to be not violent, but gentle. This should characterize a pastor in all his relationships. A pastor must not be violent towards his wife, nor towards his children, nor towards his fellow church members, nor towards anyone. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is an evidence that Christ lives within us. Pastors should seek to set the the standard for the church of what it means to be gentle even in the most trying and difficult of circumstances. And by the way, that's connected with being self-controlled, isn't it? Learning to be gentle under pressure, that requires self-control. A man who is violent is someone who has not learned to take charge over himself. But a man who is gentle shows that he has learned to control his emotions, his words, and his actions. I wonder if others would describe you as gentle. The next qualification is similar to that one. A pastor is not to be quarrelsome. Not to be quarrelsome. God is Hates division and strife in his church. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Pastors are to share the love that the Father and the Son have for peace. Now, this does not mean that pastors should ever compromise God's truth in order for a church to maintain a false peace or a false unity, but it does mean that pastors should handle themselves. End the disputes that might come their way in such a way that is gentle and calming and pursuing reconciliation. Pastors are not to be the kind of men who are looking to start a quarrel, but rather they should be the kind that are seeking to bring an end to one as quickly as possible in the best possible means. Well, then also the qualification of a pastor is that he is not to be a lover of money, not a lover of money. That goes with what we saw a couple weeks ago in First Peter 5 verse 2 where we read that pastors are not to serve for shameful gain, but eagerly. Addressing all believers, the Hebrew writer says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And So pastors are to be a model of that kind of contentment and should inspire other believers to pursue treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Well, the last three qualifications each come with an explanation. Paul gives the qualification, and he gives a reason why it's important. The first is he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the point here is quite obvious. A man's leadership in his home reflects what his leadership will look like in the local church. If a man does not lead, provide for, and protect his own family at home, he should not be called upon to do those very same things in the local church. Note that he is to know how to keep his children submissive, meaning that a pastor is to know how to set rules and to discipline. But at the same time, he's to do this with all dignity, He's not to abuse His children or to provoke them. He is to oversee them as a loving Father. And that's how a pastor should lead in the church as well. Now in verse 6 we read this one. He must not be a recent convert. Why? He may become puffed up by conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Satan himself was filled with pride and sought to take the position of God Himself, resulting in His being cast down from heaven into eternal condemnation. Here we see that taking someone who has only recently come to Christ and placing them in the office of pastor could tempt them into the same kind of pride that afflicted Satan. This again reminds us that pastors are called elders in order to emphasize they are to be men of spiritual maturity. They are not to be novices in the faith. This also reminds us about not laying hands on someone too hastily. Not only for the spiritual health of the church, but for the spiritual health of that man. This is a terrible tragedy that Paul is describing here. For a man to fall away from Christ and to make shipwreck of his faith, because he was put in a position of spiritual leadership in the faith, spiritual leadership in the church, too early. And so we're not to put novices in the faith in the pastoral office. And then finally, the last qualification he must be thought well of by outsiders. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is, again, something required of all believers. Colossians 4, verse 5 conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Uh, The point is that believers are to live in a way that they are seen as respectable even to those outside of the church. It is particularly terrible for a man to serve as a pastor of a church and yet to be known by his unbelieving neighbors and family members as a liar or a womanizer, or an unethical businessman. This kind of man will fall into disgrace not only among unbelievers, but in the eyes of his church when they learn what his neighbors already know. Moreover, Paul warns that these kinds of circumstances will ultimately lead a man into a snare of the devil, meaning a kind of trap into which he will become entangled and will not be able to be set free. So perhaps when the church finds out about his reputation among unbelievers, he will respond by more lying or more deception, anger or manipulation. And a man in this situation is bound to have his heart hardened and his faith lost. The point is that it is better to avoid this kind of situation to begin with by appointing pastors who are known to have a respectable reputation even among those outside of the church, his neighbors, his family members, his friends. Well, let me close by drawing our attention to Christ because these qualifications were laid down by Christ for His pastors in His churches, and why? Why does Jesus give us 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7? It's because He loves us, because He knows what is best for us. He intends to sanctify His church, to present her to Himself blameless on the last day. Pastors are only instruments, imperfect, crooked, messed up instruments in the hands of Christ that He uses to accomplish His will. Christ is the head of the church, and any good that is ever done through any pastor, all of the glory and the honor and the thanksgiving belong to Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Once again, this is the kind of sermon where I know I just preached to myself, and you listened. So pray for me as you think about these things. Meditate on them. And pray for Merle as we move towards a couple of weeks and uh, see what happens there. Questions? Other than Benjamin.